Father God, thank you that we can come together in this church. We thank you for it. We thank you for the folks who have given, who have not just with their money, but with their lives to build this work, to work into people's lives, to grow this kingdom, not just numerically, but spiritually. And as we go today to look about your kingdom, Lord, and how we are growing in it individually, numerically, but inside us is where the kingdom grows, Lord, and and help us to understand it more. Lord, help us to be amazed at you and humbled at ourselves as we look into your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Going back, we talked about the parables of the kingdom and what is the kingdom of God and that the kingdom of God is multiple things in multiple times in that it is here and now and it is within us and it's essentially a spiritual kingdom in each believer and in the church as long as, and there is no church without believers, but the strength of that kingdom and the believers of this church is the strength of the kingdom in this church and the kingdom in the world, and it is based in believers. Now, there will be a time in the future where Christ will reign enthroned on this earth bodily, and at that time, he will begin, there, that will be, Satan will not be destroyed at this point, he will not be cast in eternity into the lake of fire, but there will be a time when that reign becomes evident in not just spiritually, but materially in the world, and things will be made right. And then in the final new creation, New Jerusalem, sin and death will be destroyed, and all of these things will become one again. This oneness of the spiritual kingdom that reigns now in us to be perfected individually in glory. And we know some folks that are now glorified in that kingdom. The Lord reigns in their life, and He reigns fully. Now, He reigns over us fully, but we don't always acknowledge it. And there will come a day when we will, and we will do so joyfully, and all of creation will uh, do so joyfully. Right now, it does not, and people do not. But those who believe and have faith will reign with Him one day, eternally, perfectly. But now this kingdom does exist. And so we talked about last week that there is an activeness of the kingdom and there is a passiveness of the kingdom. And we're looking at Matthew 5 to look more at the kingdom because as Christ comes in the Sermon of the Mount that begins in chapter 5, he is laying out the way the kingdom works. Now, all of the Old Testament does that, all the New Testament does that. But this is where he gets very specific in this, this longest sermon delivered by Christ to a group he explains the kingdom. And you could say rules for the kingdom, though we don't want to say the, the Sermon on the Mount is just a bunch of rules, but it does explain the law of the kingdom, the law that has always been, but Christ gives us more and he raises it. But there is an active sense of things that we as believers should do, must do, and will do because of the passive work of Christ in our lives. By passive, not on his part, on our part. There are things in our life, the Spirit has entered us as believers. The Spirit drew us to Christ. The Spirit enabled us to see the truth of Christ, to see the depths of our sin. Those things on our part are passive. That is the active work of God. God is always active in working out his kingdom. We receive some things passive, but we're not just passive. To make the mistake and just say, God is going to work it all out. Bible is very clear that we are to do things and we are to be things. And those things require us to grow. 
Christ is working out this sanctification. So I'm taking this look over these few weeks at the Sermon on the Mount as an explanation. It's not the only one of sanctification. So we have our justification. We are forever sealed. We are in eternity saved by what the work of Christ on the cross. And there's nothing we can do to change that. There's nothing we did to earn that. There's nothing we can do to lose that. Between our glorification with the Lord, we are in this period of sanctification. We're becoming more like Him. We're becoming holy. And it's not always a linear path. It's often peaks and valleys. And I think what tends to happen with sanctification is we do have our peaks and valleys because of our flaws, our sin nature. It's not that the Lord can't do that, but the Lord is always challenging us to grow. And sometimes, I've heard this example given, how many have ever climbed mountains, climbed in a national park, or somewhere, and you think, in in maybe small mountains like the hill country, and you think, I'm going to climb to the top of that. And then you get there, and you get up there, and then you look and you think, this is the top of nothing. It goes higher. That's kind of what our walk of sanctification is, is that when we think we've accomplished and the Lord has accomplished in us, we get to a point and then we realize, I've got a lot further to go. And so this kind of up and down, some of that is plateaus, then we realize how much further we have to go. Okay, back into Matthew chapter 5. And Matthew chapter 5 starts with the Beatitudes. So something interesting about the Beatitudes, for one, you've probably heard many good, better than this, sermons and passages on the Beatitudes. They're very teachable. They're very powerful. But they are a paradox. From the get-go, we sit down, Matthew chapter 5, I should say, Jesus sits down to teach. And what is the first thing he does? He throws out several statements that just don't make sense. They're, They're paradoxical. They say one thing. And they say something else, and you think, well, those two things can't go together. Tell us about this kingdom, Lord, and you just put question marks on these statements. They are a paradox. I want to read to you. I read to you last week from the Valley of Vision. This is a book of Puritan prayers. And this one is called Paradoxes. This is a very good. I was telling Jerry that as I read this, I laughed, but not because it's funny. I thought, wow, how could this be so on point for me? I think you'll find it too. O changeless God, under the conviction of thy spirit, I learn that the more I do, the worse I am. The more I know, the less I know. The more holiness I have, the more sinful I am. The more I love, the more there is to love. O wretched man that I am, O Lord, I have a wild heart and cannot stand before thee. I am like a bird before a man. How little I love thy truth and ways. I neglect prayer by thinking I have prayed enough and earnestly, by knowing thou hast saved my soul. Of all hypocrites, grant that I may not be an evangelical hypocrite who sins more safely because grace abounds, who tells his lusts that Christ's blood cleanseth them, who reasons that God cannot cast him into hell, for he is saved, who loves evangelical preaching, churches, Christians, but lives unholily. My mind is a bucket without a bottom, with no spiritual understanding, no desire for the Lord's day, ever learning but never reaching the truth, always at the gospel well, but never holding water. 
My conscience is without conviction or contrition, with nothing to repent of. My will is without power of decision or resolution. My heart is without affection and full of leaks. My memory has no retention, so I forget easily the lessons learned, and thy truths seep away. Give me a broken heart that yet carries home the water of grace. The poem I read you last week, prayer, had a line that said, Far too often I lay my pipe just short of the fountain of grace. And this one says the same thing in a different way of saying, my heart is a bucket with a hole in it, and the grace I get just seems to always trip out, and I go to my bucket, and it's empty. And he says, give my broken heart the ability to hold this grace and hold on to it. So I read that because I think it is a good introduction. Again, we're going to repeat some of the verses of what the Beatitudes are starting to tell us from the get-go. What Jesus wants us to know is we see the kingdom and the teaching of it, and how to be a part of it, it explains what we are, not just what we should do. We start with the first beatitude. Verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you look at the Beatitudes, and I'm not going to deal with the fact that some people say there's eight, some people say there's nine, some people say there's seven, some people say there's ten. It doesn't really matter. I guess it does if you explain it well, but let's break down a few of these in some categories, and then we're going to go back and and dig into them again. The first three we see are about people in need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. These represent a need, an emptying, a needing to be filled. The person whose bucket is empty, the person whose pipe did not reach the fountain. These Beatitudes recognize that. The next hinges on... On verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And where I'm going to point us to is to say that these first three, when they are true in a person's life about the Christian, automatically create in the person where those exist a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then out of that, it's the center, the, number four is the pivot point. It doesn't mean it's most important. None of these are most important. They're all the same. Out of that grows the next. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are the peacemakers. Out of a hunger and thirst for righteousness come people who are merciful, who are pure in heart, and who who are peacemakers. And in doing those things, because those are the things that Jesus does and is, we get the next line, which is, blessed are those who are persecuted, For righteousness' sake. 
All of these things, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, and there's much more we can say of righteousness. But when you've got through this seventh, now comes the eighth. You will suffer as Christ suffered. You will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. So there's how they, they kind of build on each other. I want to read one quote before we go on. I, I, just, I had this one last week, and so I kept it this week. I think it's really good. As we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, as we talk about the Beatitudes, but the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, in a sense, restating the law, but he's taking it to the nth degree. He's not changing the law, but he's saying, you think the law was hard? You know, adultery? Murder? You think you're not guilty of those? Let me raise the stakes. This is what the spirit of the law has always been. And it's so hard to accomplish. And then the, so the Sermon on the Mount is an idea of what law that we must do, we will fail. And anyone without the Spirit has no chance of even fulfilling any of it and definitely not doing it joyfully with a desire. We don't look at the Sermon on the Mount necessarily and say, be this way, do this. What it is saying is that if you're a Christian, if you're part of the kingdom, this is what you are. And this is the things you will do. Paul Tripp said, Our acceptance with God is only ever based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. While it calls you to forsake everything to follow Jesus, committing yourself to make His holy transforming work in you the work that shapes everything in your life. The doctrine of sanctification, and in this sense the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, calls you to rest in God's grace while it calls you to a life of surrender and obedience. Never complacent and never passive between your conversion and your home going. So, as we live our life before God, God has given us the grace to live that life. Grace that justifies us, grace that sanctifies us, and grace to take part in that sanctification. And in doing so, we bring glory to God. I talked about this last week, and then Sam preached on, used this verse as well, of saying the aroma we have of Christ, which to those who are being saved is a sweet aroma, and is a sweet aroma to God, but to the lost is the stench of death. So as believers, as we look at ourselves, as we evaluate ourselves in light of this Sermon on the Mount, and we think of what Paul says about that fragrance, do we smell right, or do we smell like the world? Does the world say, I like the way you smell? then probably God does not like the way we smell because we don't smell like Christ. Three things about the law is that we're not under it, but we're still meant to keep it. There's some of the ceremonial law that is passed. To keep it now would be pointing to the wrong thing. But the moral law remains. Flip over to Romans 8. The verses will be on the screen. We do need to keep some law, but we do it through a mechanism that we didn't have before we were saved. To keep the law before we're saved, one, earns us nothing. Two, is impossible. Three, it condemns us. But it does guide us to God's truth, and it helps us to know that we're sinners. But when we are saved, keeping of the law no longer that we couldn't keep anyway is a way to salvation. But it is something we keep, but we keep it through the Spirit. And that's what Paul says in Romans 8. Let's start there, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, let's take that verse, leave that verse up there. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, you could look at this and say, well, what that means is that we're justified. So God looks at us and he sees Christ. Therefore, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. No, it's not. Who's it fulfilled in, in that case? Jesus. What Paul is pointing is that we can fulfill the righteous requirements of the law here and now. Me. Justified by Christ. Which I could never do myself. But Paul is saying we can fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. But how do we do that? He says it right there. According to the Spirit. The flesh couldn't do it. I think sometimes we read that verse and we stumble about who the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We're assigning what Christ fulfilled the law, but he's saying us. We will fulfill the law. Now, in the Spirit, continuing in 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now I want to pick up these words again because I think this is a common... I think we see truth in this verse, but we don't see all of it often. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... If you are a Christian, true believer, the Spirit dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Stop there. Let's ignore the rest of that verse for just a second. Our mortal bodies will rise again. David, we, you asked me this question earlier. We were talking about it. If I die today, the rest of you are still here. It's not a rapture. I will be with the Lord. My body's still here. But it will rise. But I don't think that's exclusively what that verse is saying. Through His Spirit who dwells in you. When I die, I still am indwelled by the Spirit of God. The Spirit doesn't stay behind with my dead body. He is with me. My body's left, I'm separated from it, and that's not great. That will be fixed in the Lord's time. So I think we've got to read this verse and remember that what has happened is that our mortal bodies, we are in dead flesh. And when we're saved, it's definitely dead. It was dead before, we had dead hearts. But now we recognize this body has been put to death. 
yet. I'm walking around. I can see all of you in here. Jerry's dead body had surgery on it to help fix it up. But we have a spirit that indwells each of our bodies in here and lets us give life to these mortal bodies. And what is that life to do? It is to be sanctified and live holy lives. So there is a life. And you ought to think of, the, you think of this dilemma. Because the Bible's pretty clear that we have a dead flesh. And it's dragging around. And there are some people that look at the teaching of that and say, Oh no, that's all gone. You have no indwelling sin. You can be perfect in this life. Script, I don't think Scripture teaches that at all. I think you have to ignore a lot of it. But somehow we use these bodies that spiritually Christ has said put to death and we use them in this life to do holy things or to sin. And the Spirit allows us to do things with the life that it gives us in these dead bodies. That's where I'm taking 11 to take us back now to Matthew 5. When we realize that we're not under the law but we must keep it, we also have to realize that we're always in the presence of God. We are forever in the presence of God. God was in your presence. You were in God's presence. God's presence, we can't hide from God. He sees within. He knows our hearts. We are always in the presence of God. Is that something you think about every day? I don't think about it every day, and I should. I think the Sermon on the Mount tells us, you're in the presence of God. This is how people in the presence of God who love the Lord and trust Him behave. We're always in the presence of God. Every thought, every action occurs in the presence of God. It is an intimacy beyond any other intimacy that we have. And it should inform our actions, our thoughts. We're children of God. And here's another thing about being in the presence of God. Anything that happens, any event that happens to me, that happens to you, we have to realize someone else is here. God is here. God is in this place. God is in that place when that happened. I don't understand it, but when I got up last night and looked at my air conditioner and it was out at 2.30, God's presence is there. And I'm really struggling with that because I'm like, God, that is not fair. We just replaced that two years ago. And it's 103. Did you know that? We are in the presence of God. So not only should we fear God because He is great and righteous in the Old Testament teaching and New Testament teaching, we should fear God, not in a terror We trust Him and we love Him, but we know that He is a judge. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But we should also be comforted that there's there's not accidents in this world. There's not things that that God's not with us. The world thinks differently. But Jesus says here a bit later, don't worry about food, drink, or clothing. The Lord knows what you need. He knows what you have. We just always live in the fear of God. So we go back now to the Beatitudes. And a few things about the Beatitudes to remember. I didn't say these last week, I meant to. These Beatitudes we've read apply to all Christians. All Christians should be like this. There is not a class of Christian, there's not a certain Christian that these don't apply to. These are not for the super Christians. Or the super apostles, as Paul called them, mockingly. These are not for the martyrs. These are not for the pastor These are for every Christian. The Beatitudes apply. It's the the character of every Christian. Every single one. All of us. Not the best. And not just Christ. These, These describe Christ. 
And then all Christians are to manifest all of these. Something I think sneaks into us is we think, okay, well, I'm meek, but I, I don't recognize that sp- poor in spirit one. Or I hunger for righteousness. But because I've got that, meek, don't need to worry about that one. I got one of the, the, the Beatitudes right. No, they all apply to all Christians at all times. And I'm just saying, like, 10 centuries ago, I mean, for me today and tomorrow and yesterday, all of these should apply and they should describe a Christian. And for you, all of them, today, tomorrow, yesterday, all of them. It's that we can't pick and choose. One does not say, well, as long as I got one. But there is a thing. We're not going to manifest all of these the same way all the time because of our weaknesses, because of sin. There will be times that you could say, well, I can definitely see the meekness that the Lord talks about in Matthew 5 in this person. And I don't notice the others. It's just not apparent. I trust they're good. We're not going to judge each other that way. But they, there are times we'll feel more of one, more, less of one. But we are to have all of these as our characteristics as Christians. And then another thing, and this is, this is maybe a hard one to, to get, is that none of these are natural characteristics. Now, you could say, well, I know people that are meek that aren't Christians. There are people that are meek. There are people that mourn who are not Christians. There are people who are empty. They have a poverty of their spirit who are not Christians. There are people that hunger and thirst for righteousness, a type of righteousness, who are not Christians. We all have characteristics. We have different levels of meekness naturally. Most people, that's a hard one to come by naturally. But that doesn't matter. These are spiritual works done in us through the Spirit in our sanctification. If we come to them and we say, well, I started out meek, so I got that one covered. No, you didn't. You just, if you said that, you probably should just cancel that one in your pride. Now, these are works of the Spirit. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he talks about two people. The question is, is if Christians are supposed to be so good, how come some of the meanest people I know are Christians? And I know some atheists that are just great, the kindest people. Lewis makes a great point. He says, you know, we all start from, with different faculties. We're like different car companies making different cars. But Christians are under new management. And some of the old equipment is going to get upgraded. In fact, all of it will. And then the atheist, in his example, that was given great qualities of, of meekness, of kindness, being a peacemaker... Those things bring no honor because they're outside of faith. They're outside of honoring the Lord. He doesn't, honor, he doesn't care to honor the Lord of those things. Therefore, they're sinful. They're pride-making. And they do not bring glory to God. But God put them in there, and that person too. And they have a responsibility to hand them over to Him, as we do as Christians. But it's not natural tendencies. We can't confuse our temperament with our transformation. It's a spiritual matter. It's a spiritual work. So let's go now back to poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is where we start. If you look at the Beatitudes, we can look at them as a path of the believer coming to know Christ, growing in Christ. And what does it start with? To be poor in spirit. So what does that mean? I I like to go ahead and just use the word poverty of spirit. It's an emptiness it is an attitude toward the self of saying, I'm missing what I need. 
And we don't do this looking at each other. You know, these first things, the first two at least, are looking at ourselves. We don't go to somebody else and say, decide if you're poor in spirit or not. We're not the judge. We stand in the presence of God and His holiness and His righteousness. If we look on Him with eyes that have been opened to His glory, they have to be opened first. We have to see. The Spirit has to start this work in us so that we can see how holy and great He is and how empty and how sinful we are. Well, that's the first step in coming to know the Lord. If you don't believe you're a sinner, you can't trust Jesus as your Savior. If you don't believe that Jesus can save you and you need salvation, and that He will judge the sins of all, then you can't come to salvation. Now, I would want to say, too complicated, because we're not going to go ask the kids in fourth and fifth grade, do you understand all these things? Can you, you know, faith is simple. But there is in all faith, saving faith, an understanding of this that will be evidenced by believers who are poor in spirit. Are we poor in spirit? It means an absence of pride, an absence of self-assurance, conscience that we are nothing in the presence of God. It's humility, and we can't produce it. Again, we're not born with it. If you are born with it, this is not the one. You need a spiritual work. When we come before the face of God, we look to God in submission. We look to God in dependence. We look to Him for grace and mercy. Think of, there's many examples of this in Scripture, but one I think of is Isaiah. And he is in the throne room of God, and he sees the glory of God. And what does he say? Woe is me. I am undone. Always thought of that phrase, I am undone. You know, we see sci-fi movies, or you see a hero, you know, what do you call them? Marvel or things like that. And somebody always has a blaster. They blast somebody. They just disappear. And they just, they're not even blood and guts. They just, they're gone. And I think of that as like Isaiah. Isaiah in the presence of God and thinking, I am so empty. I am so sinful in the presence of God that I am coming undone. My atoms cannot hold up to the glory of God. That is an idea of poverty of spirit, an emptiness. Not of a depression. Don't confuse this. Oh, with that, that's, that's not a spiritual, that the, the Lord's involved in people's lives on the depressing side of that and the getting over it side of that. But it's not that coming to it and just saying, well, I got, I'm just poor in spirit and I, I hate myself. No, that's, that's different. It's a poverty of spirit. You think, okay, well, how do I know if I have a poverty of spirit? Look to God. Look in the Word. Are you in awe of God? And are you... Do you recognize your need? And I'm not just saying these things to the person who needs to come to know the Lord. And I'm assuming that we all know the Lord. But that may not be the case. But that goes every day for a Christian. The gospel is important to us every day for the rest of our lives and eternity. We will celebrate the story. I love the hymn that we will tell the angels who've been looking in on these things. This is the story. This is redemption. I love to tell it. These Beatitudes apply to us at all times. It's not just the believer. Somebody who comes to faith at first has a poverty of spirit. No, every time we look at the Lord, when we understand Him rightly, and when we understand ourselves rightly, we should recognize and be poor in spirit. And that moves to the next. So in the believer's life, as this thing is established, this next comes, and blessed are those who mourn. When we recognize that we are sinners, we will mourn. 
This is a spiritual morning. This is not being sad because somebody died or something bad happened. That morning will, will fade. This is a morning that in the light of our sin, our sin is always bad. As this prayer we read says, I'm confused thinking that forgiven sin is okay sin. It's sin. There is, I think within Christians, if you look historically, if you look in recent history, and you may know some, there are some Christians that are so dour. I think of uh, Eeyore, you know, Winnie the Pooh. That is not what this is about. But it's also one thing we probably see more of is Christians that never mourn. A church that, that believes that everything is jovial and just, this is the feel-good place. It does feel good to be believers. It does feel good to worship. It does feel good to read God's Word. But sometimes it doesn't because we see God and we see our sin. And that shouldn't feel good except in the light that we're forgiven. That feels good. It is a spiritual morning. If we have a false happiness or a false dourness, that's not mourning. But a deep conviction of sin is. A dissatisfaction in not having joy in the Lord. There must be a mourning. But what do we have promised to those who mourn? First part, happiness. Happy are those who are sad. If they're sad for the right things, joy will come. Mourning follows being poor in spirit. I want to read you a quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about mourning. To mourn is something that follows of necessity from being poor in spirit. It is quite inevitable. As I confront God and His holiness and contemplate the life that I am meant to live, I see myself, my utter helplessness and hopelessness. I discover my quality of spirit and immediately that makes me mourn. I must mourn about the fact that I am like that. But obviously it does not stop there. A man who truly faces himself and examines himself in his life is a man who must of necessity mourn for his sins also, for the things he does. Self-examination has always been recommended by those experts of life in the Spirit. They all recommend and practice it themselves. They say it is a good thing for every man to pause at the end of the day and meditate upon himself, to run quickly over his life and ask, What have I done? What have I said? What have I thought? And how have I behaved with respect to others? Now, if you do that any night of your life, you will find that you have done things which you should not have done. You will be conscious of having harbored thoughts and ideas and feelings which are quite unworthy. And as he realizes these things, any man who is at all a Christian is smitten with a sense of grief and sorrow that he was ever capable of such things. And it makes him mourn. And not just the things he's done but the actions and conditions of others, of sinfulness in the world. What does it maybe do that? What does it makes me like that? Now to meekness, these are kind of dour things. But he starts by saying, blessed, happy are those who, who understand this. And in the Christian walk, in our emptiness, and we go to mourning our sin when we understand it, The next step is meekness. And meekness is the one that turns from being just an individual understanding of yourself to that of others. All of us can be pretty good, if we're honest, to know what our sins are. Mostly, David said, forgive me of my hidden sins I don't even know about. But we can be pretty reflective and say, yeah, that was wrong. I sinned. But you know what we don't like? When somebody else does it. We just don't like it. Even though they're right. We don't like it. 
But to be meek is the person that recognizes that we've been wrong or that we've been wronged. Now, Martin Luther in his great hymn said, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Meek is one of those that is so hard for us to disassociate with natural proclivities. There are people I know that are really strong, that are really nice, and I've never thought they could use those guns to do, you know, they could be whipping people left and right. But I can't imagine them doing that. And I think that's the definition of meekness. There is some truth in that. But if that's the case, I and many others can't be meek because we don't carry the same muscle mass. Some of that is a gift of God. You were born with it. Some of it is a gift of working out. You were born with the will to do that. But that's not what meekness is. That's not a spiritual gift. That is not brought about by the Spirit's work. When we're ready to face our own sins, even in the light of them being revealed, as we've come on this path of emptiness, mourning, and meekness, we're beginning to be the meek who are blessed. It has to be produced. It's not laziness. It's not easygoing. It's not being nice. It's having a true view of oneself. Expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. And we have so many examples in Christ being the first and best of meekness. Now, I do think we can make the mistake of just saying, well, Christ could have whipped everybody. He could have called the angels down. And that's what meekness is. You could be really strong, but you, you hold it back. Again, there's truth and definition. But you could be a weakling. And your attitude, in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit which is what guns you have, what strength you have. Your spirit is where it counts. And you can have a spirit that is ready to fight, a spirit that's ready to brawl, a spirit that's ready to say, I do not accept that, and you're going to pay for saying that. Sometimes we say that to the Lord. And when we get through these three, the next move is what we'll talk about next week. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. I'm going to read to close one more quote from Lewis when he's talking about these two people as an example of all of us. If you come with nice things, if you come with what you think are being blessed by the Beatitudes, but they're not from the Spirit, take this to heart. It costs God nothing, so far as we know, to create nice things, but to convert rebellious wills cost Christ's crucifixion. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but produce, produce a new kind of man. And it is not like a horse being taught to jump better or faster, but a horse becoming Pegasus, a new creature. That's what the when we read, when we start the Sermon on the Mount, and the, the, the things we read and think, well, how can I do that? How can I turn the other cheek? How can I give them my coat? Well, there's some things we can get a little crazy in how we try to understand it. But what we can know is that to be poor in spirit is a virtue, and it's blessed. And to be meek and to mourn. And when we start there and we get there, within us we'll build a hunger for righteousness from the spirit within. Let's pray and we'll go. Father God, thank you for your mercy in our lives. 
Thank you for saving us in ways that we could never approach, nor would we desire, in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, in his resurrection, in the hope that we have of eternity, Lord. And as you make us more like Christ, we thank you for your mercy to grow in holiness, to grow in Christ's likeness. Help us to do that, Lord. I pray you would, and I know you will, goad us, poke us when we turn, when we ignore your truth and your glory. We think too much of ourselves. We think that we can do all of this on our own. Lord, be with us now as we go to worship, as we go to hear your word. I pray for our pastor as he teaches us, Lord, that you would continue to work in our hearts through the power of your spirit in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.